Back in the 1980s, there was a famous football dynasty called the Chicago Bears. Uh, if you were watching football back then, you remember them in the NFL, National Football League. They won the Super Bowl, one of the best teams ever, only lost one game that year. Their coach was a man by the name of Mike Ditka, uh, and they had lots of interesting, fascinating players. One of them was named William Perry, but he went by the nickname of Refrigerator Perry. <coughs> and back then, the 300-pound football players were rare, and so he was big, and so they called him the Fridge. And uh, NFL teams, I don't know if you realize this, they have chapels every Sunday uh, before their game. In fact, my dad, uh, back in the day, would come down to Cincinnati every once in a while to do a, a chapel for the Bengals. Um, but in this day, they were having a chapel for the Bears in Chicago, and Ditka asked uh, William Refrigerator Perry to lead the team in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback of the team, leaned over to the, the chaplain and he said, this is going to be rich. I bet you $50 the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm not sure you should be giving odds during chapel or betting over the Lord's Prayer. But the chaplain said, okay, I'll take it. Then they all bowed their heads. The fridge stood up and he began to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Jim McMahon shook his head, took out his wallet, handed the chaplain the money, and said, I could have swore he knew the Lord's Prayer. Um, yeah. You know, the Lord's Prayer, it's probably the most quoted set of words in the Western world when you think about it. If it shocks you that a football team would be quoting the Lord's Prayer, well, you've never been in a locker room before a game. It's used often before games, usually as kind of a good luck charm. You see, while the Lord's Prayer is often quoted, it's also just as often misunderstood and misused. When you think about it, these teams, the basketball team, the football team, baseball team, they're in their locker room saying the Lord's Prayer. All the, other, all the same time, the other team is saying the Lord's Prayer, both thinking they're getting God on their side just by saying these ritualistic words. Now, on a serious note, uh, as we look at the broken world around us, we know we need much more than a good luck charm. Satan right now seems to be having a heyday, doesn't he? In our world, in our nation, in our families, and even in our churches. Today, this morning, April 11th, I'm sure some of you have come into this auditorium with heavy hearts, even raw emotions. And it's at these times where it's often hard to form the words we know we can't fix these messes they're way too big for us they're way above our pay grade so we turn in prayer to dependence on the one and only God who can bring us hope and so that's why I want us today to look at the Lord's prayer because Jesus gave it to us to help us 
form the words, to know how to pray, to know how to come to God in the midst of brokenness and heartache. Eric already read it, but I just want to point uh, your attention to Matthew chapter 6. And I just want us to focus on, on verses 7 to 13. So if you have your Bible, you can open there to Matthew chapter 6. And I just want to reread verses 7 to 13. Jesus is talking, preaching. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you pray, pray something like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. The problem of inauthentic prayer didn't begin with the Chicago Bears locker room. Meaningless prayer has been a symptom of our human lives all the way back to Jesus' time. In fact, it's a symptom of a larger problem. Empty spirituality and inauthentic religiosity has birthed empty prayer lives. And so we actually find the Lord's Prayer in a context and in the passage of a larger sermon Jesus preached that we know as the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, where Jesus is teaching us how to live kingdom lives, how we can live right side up. Um, Dallas Willard tells the story of a young pilot in Colorado learning to fly with uh, just the dials in front of her. Um, you know, you can fly by looking out the window or you can fly looking at the dials. And, and, and as she was learning that, uh, she f was flying one day and went into a cloud bank. Remember, she's in Colorado, so you can have mountains popping up here and there. And unfortunately, when she got in that cloud bank, her instincts took over. And instead of focusing on those dials, she looked outside, she couldn't figure out where she was, and she got discombobulated, and what she thought was up was down, and down was up, and she came towards the mountain, and as you can expect, she went right smack in the side of it and died, tragically. She was flying upside down, all the while she thought she was right side up. Jesus was talking to people in the Sermon on the Mount who thought they were flying right side up, but all the time they were flying upside down. And he wants, he, they're getting all this religious stuff wrong. So he's trying to correct them. He's trying to give them examples of how to live their lives. He takes on some of the key questions that we would bring in religious situations. The, the question of who are the blessed? What's a good life and how do you live it? And Jesus says, if you remember, it's not the strong that make it, it's the weak. It's, it's the poor 
not the rich. It's the persecuted, not the mighty. That's who live the good life. Well, that doesn't sound right. Then he talked about the question of the law, the Ten Commandments. What keeps me okay with God? How do I do that? And he said, actually, it goes beyond the law. See, adultery is not just the act. It's actually in your mind, looking at a woman with lustful thoughts. Murder is not just the act of killing. It's actually calling your friend a fool. He's telling us how to live right side up. And then he says, he talks about religious practices that were going on in that day. In our day as well, what it means to give to the needy and what it means to fast. And in our case, what does it mean to pray right side up? Jesus is smashing categories right and left. He's blowing their minds and he's blowing their souls. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, Matthew records for us how the people responded When Jesus finished these sayings, he says, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Right now, in our world, as we react to the brokenness and the hurt, it seems like everyone's flying upside down. It's increasingly hard to know who to follow, whose advice to take, how to fly the right path. It's at times like this where it's oh so crucial to look at the dials, to look at the compass, to make sure we're going in the right direction, right side up. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. And in our case today, he shows us how we pray, kingdom-like. You see, upside-down prayer, which was going on in his day, it was all about technique. Praying upside-down, Jesus says, it's all about me. It's all about my will and what I want in life. Upside-down prayer is, is going to God to try to change my circumstances. It's, it's a religious act. Something I do as a ritual to try to earn God's favor. Upside down prayer, Jesus says, is is superficial. It's very thin. There's not any depth to it. Upside down, down prayer is simply a duty. That's all it is. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what kingdom prayer is. What right side living is. Authentic spirituality. Kingdom prayer, see, is right side up prayer. It's authentic prayer. It's supernatural prayer. It's life changing prayer. And and I really just want to share one main point with you today when it comes to kingdom prayer. And that's this. Kingdom prayer begins with a name. Our Father. Kingdom prayer begins with a name. We know names matter, don't we? When we pass someone in the street and we say, hey, buddy, hey, how you doing? Versus, Tom, good to see you. Susie, it's been too long. Daughter, oh, sweetie, how are you? Names matter. In fact, names will often call attention to the relationship we have with someone. Anything you say, boss, Yes, sir, General Smith. Names matter. 
they call our own attention and how we use them to our relationship to the person. You see, Jesus, by starting with a name, he's, he's showing us right away, this is not about a formula. They're not where you plug in certain words. It's not a ritual. Prayer, kingdom prayer, is a presence. It starts with a presence by using a name. Jesus teaches us when we pray, we begin by addressing our Father. How do we approach God? Two truths. The first truth is this. We come into his presence as a child to a father. We come into his presence as a child to his father. One writer has said we come to Jesus, we come to God on family terms, not business terms. Family terms, not business terms. Of all the names Jesus could have used for God, he used Father. So he's suggesting that it's that relationship we focus on. In other words, we don't go to God as a boss where you have to perform. We go to God as a Father where you're accepted. We come to Father in a relationship that's based on grace not performance. You know, it's right when we have an employer-employee relationship that that relationship's based on how we're doing. We do what's asked of us. We get paid. We do more that's asked, what's asked of us. We get a raise. We don't do. We get fired. And that's perfectly fine. That's the way it's supposed to be. But that's not the way it is with a family. You become part of a family and you're loved based on the fact that you're part of that family. With an employer, you perform and you're accepted. With a father, you're accepted and therefore you obey. Now, I don't know if we realize how mind-blowing that was for Jesus' day to call God Father. It wasn't normally done. You know, the whole Old Testament, which has so many references to God in so many different ways, it only refers to God as a father 15 times. When you think about the relationship of the people to God in the Old Testament, your mind goes to the Holy of Holies. It goes to the Day of Atonement. It goes to the high priest who on one day a year, one man goes into one room to represent all the people to be in God's presence. God's presence for them was at arm's length. That's how they knew God. But now we have Jesus introducing Something about him being a father. And in fact, the first four books of the Bible, the Gospels, refer to the God as father 165 times. It's an emphasis. And in fact, there's no more beautiful passage in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son when the father welcomes home the sinning younger brother with a hug. You've now moved from this picture of the Holy Holies, God at arm's length, to now the picture of a warm embrace. God embracing us. That, that's what Jesus is communicating to us. To come to him in the presence as a child to a father. All the difference a mindset makes for people who pray. If God is an employer then we must be holy so he will think well of us. It's, it's some kind of spiritual contract that we have to be clever about so God will love us. 
But that's not what Jesus wants us to do. We, we think of him as a father who loves us simply because we're his child. He receives us with compassion. Like a father listens to his weak and sickly child. God, God brings us in and hugs us with a joy as he hears even a stammering child. He looks at us and receives us with gentle patience, even bearing a thoughtless child. Now, I, I need to take a little bit of time, a little aside here, to acknowledge that some people in the room, when I refer to God as a father, doesn't bring back good memories for you. We live in a broken world with broken families. And there are fathers who are not loving and they're not gracious and they're not embracing. So when I say, well, God is a father, you react against that. And I, I want to recognize that that's painful. But I also want you to understand that you don't, you don't take God as a father and compare him to your father. Right? You compare your father to God as a father. And in fact, even for those of us who've had good fathers, they can never measure up to God as our father, who's the father we've been dreaming of our whole life. He is our father. So we come to him as a father. We come to him in family terms, not business terms. And secondly, we come to him with sweet surrender to his perfect parental care. Sweet surrender. Before we say, give us to the Father, we say, thy will be done. You know, we often go right to the asking because we think we know what we need. I have five kids. My fourth is named Seth. He was the explorer of the bunch, the wanderer. Here he is at three. He's now about 30, I mean, not 30, about 27. But when he was three, he loved uh, bikes, and he also really loved big wheels. He had a big wheel. Now, I, I was Googling a picture of a big wheel to put up here, and I, 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 I didn't know you needed helmets for big wheels, I have to admit. Uh, I don't want nothing against that. Just You don't have to fall very far. But anyway... Uh, you know, and, and, and so we live, that's when we were in Michigan with Eric and Andy Mounts, and, and we lived in a nice neighborhood, and, and, and it was like a typical block with houses with four sidewalks on all the edges. But the unique thing about it was in our little block was on one side was a busy uh, four-lane highway, which was the main street of the town. And unfortunately, where we lived was on a hill. So when you went down there, it was all downhill. So you can imagine when you have three-year-olds that have big wheels, you have strict instructions. You don't ride your big wheel around the block without mommy or daddy. You just don't. But Seth, being the adventurer that he was one day, when his mom's attention was turned, took off on his own. Now, the good news was he didn't go down. He went the other direction. But still, he took off, and my wife realized it, and she started running after him. She finally caught him on the other side of the, of the, of the block, brought him home, and let's just say there was some instruction <laughs> given to him, and we all kind of chuckled because we know as parents, as adults, that he could not do that. He didn't understand what happens when a UPS truck meets a big wheel, right? He didn't know that. 
He thought he knew better, and he didn't. Starting to see the connection. We, we come to God in sweet surrender to his parental care. How often do we just get on our big wheels and take off in life? <laughs> Thinking we have everything figured out. We know how life should go. Do you know what worry is? Anxiousness about the future? It's when we are spiritual three-year-olds and we think we know how life should go. And maybe God's not going to get it right. Do you know what bitterness is? It's when we're spiritual three-year-olds and we thought, we think we know how life should have gone, but God didn't get it right. Jesus, by looking to our Father, is inviting us to lay down the hor horrible burden of thinking we know. There's a lot of solace in admitting to God, your will be done. It takes all the pressure off us, doesn't it? Kingdom prayer begins with a name. It's being in God's presence. We come to him first as a child to a father. But there's a second lesson, second truth. We come to him to God as a servant to a king. We come into his presence as a servant to a king. We're not only addressing God as a father, but also a king. Now, note the, the order of this, by the way. It starts with father, and then it gets to king. See, when we understand how much we're loved, then we're willing to submit. We even want to submit to somebody who loves us like this. So we come to God, not just as a father, as a king, and we come first in awe to this king. The first 40% of the Lord's prayer is all about God. Did you notice that? So what does that tell us about our prayers? The first 40% should not be about our needs. Now, there's a place for those. But at the beginning, we start not by looking at ourselves. We start by gazing at him. The first thing we need in prayer is to plunge ourselves into the doctrine of God, of who he is. Our father, who's in heaven, he's infinite. He's transcendent, but yet he's not far away. Hallowed be your name. He's holy. He's set apart. He's totally unique, but he does have a name. He's personal. Your kingdom come. Our father has a kingdom. Ergo, he is a king. I wonder what it must be like to have a father as a king, we know we just lost, well, he's not really called the king, but the queen's husband over in England. And I got to admit, reading about that family, I'm not sure I want to have a mother who's a queen. But, um, you know, it, it's got to be kind of cool, though, right, if your dad's a king. I remember back in recess, third grade, when the height of bragging was about how strong your dad was? Remember when you thought your dad was the fastest and the strongest and the best? My dad can do more push-ups than your dad. And, you know, and uh, what if you're just out shooting hoops, you know, at reset? Hey, my dad's a better basketball player. But he can make more baskets than your dad. And just think if you were LeBron James's son. And you could come back and say, well, my dad's name is James, LeBron James, and he's the king. I mean, to, to have the dad as the king trumps everybody else. To have a dad who's a king what must it say to you as a child? 
and your ability to live your life. Do you know who your father is? Do you know how he's described? Uh, Let me just give you a, a few descriptions found back in the book of Isaiah. Here's how our father is described. He says, he is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants to him are like grasshoppers, who stretches out, he does, the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Next time you're watching your favorite news channel, remember that. He lifts up, you lift up your eyes on high and you see who, who created these. He did. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, your father, the king, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding and how our lives should go, it's unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Our father is a king and our king is a father. As a king, he's more than able. And as a father, he's more than willing. As one writer says, we need to think about God until our heart is dazzled. Authentic prayer, kingdom prayer, comes to a father who is a king and a king who is a father. And kingdom prayer is prayer that's preoccupied with the glory of God. Our whole life can be experienced contemplating the depths of these truths. And as we grasp the depth and richness of what it means to have both a father and a king, then we're ready to pray. That's how we start. And guess what? We're praying already. We don't just come in awe, then we come also in submission to our king. Thy kingdom come. It's not about us. Right? I mean, we're used to be about our, being about our lives and being about our own kingdoms. That's just kind of the way we go about things. And so our prayers tend to focus on the building of our kingdoms. But that's what, not what Jesus wants us to do. Kingdom prayer doesn't begin with petition. It begins with awe, preoccupied with the glory of God. We're the subjects of the king, so we have no right to redesign his plan. Kingdom prayer is so much more than our usual prayers. Aunt Martha's neighbor's third cousin's big toe infection. Okay, but it's bigger than that. God's kingdom is about redemption. It's about fixing the brokenness of the fall. It's about redemption in our own life and about our family's life and our extended family's life and our neighborhood life. It's about redemption in our workplaces, redemption in our churches, his kingdom coming. So you can see how this could begin to affect your prayer life. You see, if you pray to a king who isn't your father, well, that's just duty. But 
if you pray to a father who isn't a king, that's just wishful thinking. We pray. Kingdom prayer is before a father as a child who loves and trusts him. And it's also before a king as servants who worship and submit to him. Upside down prayer. It's about technique. Jesus says that kingdom prayer starts with a name. It's about relationship. Upside down prayer, remember, is all about me and all about my life. Kingdom prayer is all about God and his will for my life. Upside down prayer is trying to change my circumstances because I think I know what's best. Kingdom prayer is God changing us and our, through our circumstances to show us why that's the best. Upside down prayer is a religious act, a ritual that we think can earn God's favor. Kingdom prayer is a devotional act because we have God's favor. Upside down prayer ends up being very superficial. Kingdom prayer is supernatural. Upside down prayer is simply just a duty. Kingdom prayer, what? that's a privilege. Now, I want you to know that even as uh, Jesus' audience were just astonished at his teaching and what he says about prayer, that we know more than they did. You know that? We know more than they did at that point in their training. You see, we know that Jesus didn't just teach about kingdom living, that he lived kingdom living. You see, three years later, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was again with his disciples in a garden. In fact, we talked about it last weekend. Remember? Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> and, um, you know, interesting one side is that three years later, the disciples still weren't getting it, were they? Uh, Jesus was in the midst of the garden and they were asleep. And we see Jesus now not modeling prayer, but actually praying. And he's talking to the Father. And in Matthew 26, Matthew records what Jesus said. He says, going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed. And he said, my Father, hmm, notice how he started. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now we know that the cup, is a symbol of God's wrath in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is talking about the cup, it's coming, he's talking about the full wrath of God based on the full sins of the full world that Jesus was going to take on the cross. Jesus understands the enormity of that. And he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, here's his prayer. Not as I will, Father, King, but as you will. See, we can rest and live in submission to the Father's will and his kingdom plan because Jesus did. One writer reminds us, how do we surrender? To see that Jesus surrendered for us. How do we pray, thy will be done? Because Jesus prayed, 
thy will be done for us. Uh, how, how do we know that we, that we can say to God, thy will be done in our little tests? Because Jesus prayed, thy will be done in his big test. If Jesus said, thy will be done for me, I can say, thy will be done for me. We can trust him. Three questions to close. Number one, is God your father? Are you in his family? Jesus tells us how that happens. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the father except through me. We can become children of the father through the sacrifice of the son. That's what last weekend was all about. And what Jesus did on the cross, taking our sins for us. If you can't say he's your father this morning, I invite you to become part of the family of God. Secondly, are you living like he is your king? This is, to be honest, where I can struggle. I just want to go on my big wheel and take off. I think I know what's best. You can do that too. And I want to invite you to lay down the burden of thinking you know the best way that your life should go. He does. And you can trust. And third question, do you need to be reminded that he loves you like a father? We may be grieved and confused, struggling and stammering, barely able to enunciate a prayer but I want you to know he is there ready to embrace and to listen and to comfort be assured that God is sovereign that means he's the king and his love for you is so great that he sacrificed his son for you he's the loving father we can trust him he's the king of kings and we must submit to him Kingdom prayer begins with a name. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. But kingdom prayer also ends with a name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we always come to you in the name of Jesus because there's no way we could have access to you apart from that. We'd be stuck in the Old Testament once a year through one guy. But Hebrews says Jesus is a better sacrifice. We don't have to wait for one day a year. We can come into your presence anytime, anywhere. Knowing because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can stand in your presence of holiness. Because we have his holiness. Oh Lord, we take that so for granted. We know that because if we knew the reality of it, will we ever be out of your presence? To pray without ceasing, as Paul said. But I pray today, Lord, as we just briefly looked at the son's model, just how he started, that we'd be reminded that you love us like a father and you direct us like a king. 
and we can rest. We can trust. We can hope. Encourage those who need encouragement today. Challenge those who need challenging. Bring them back home. And allow us again to know the beauty of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.